Hello, and welcome to Evaluland, the podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. Welcome to the next episode of the Evaluland podcast. I'm really excited to have my friend Elizabeth Grimm on the podcast. We met some years ago, I don't remember how many, I want to say like 2016, 2017, maybe on Twitter of all places. And ever since we've just been sending videos and memes and gifts and fun stuff to each other back and forth. And it's been a really fun and enjoyable friendship over the years. So I'm really excited to talk to you and specifically talk a little bit about your independent consulting business and a bunch of aspects related to that. So welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. Thanks, Dana. I'm excited to be here and excited to join the awesome list of guests that you've had on the show so far. Thank you. I'm glad you can make it. So I would like to always start off with having folks introduce themselves. Let's say that again. I like to start off with folks introducing themselves for our listeners. So can you share uh, who you are and what you do and anything you'd like about your background? Sure. So as you said, I'm Elizabeth Grimm. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm the founder and principal consultant of Elizabeth Grimm Consulting LLC. And this is currently a single member LLC. So that basically means I'm on the solopreneurship journey right now. I work with mission-driven organizations to help move them from confusion to clarity about their data. And I work mostly with nonprofits, state agencies, and foundations in the social service and health sectors. I'm currently based in Connecticut in New England, where I like to spend a lot of my time outside hiking and practicing photography. And I'm just so grateful for having this network of colleagues like yourself across the country to be able to collaborate with and brainstorm and chat with. So again, thanks for having me here today. Of course. Thank you. So I always like to start off uh, hearing from the beginning. We all have some really interesting and unique journeys into evaluation, although I think most people end up just saying I fell into it. But how did you get into the field of evaluation? Um, I fell into it. No, seriously. I did have a bit of a circuitous route to evaluation. So I've always been really interested in math and science, especially how the brain works. So I went to undergrad where I studied psychology and gender studies, and I was introduced to social science research there. I was on track to become a clinical psychologist and researcher focusing on mental health, anxiety, and aging. And I love the work. I was geeking out about running statistics and doing research projects. But when I started applying to clinical psychology PhD programs, I realized pretty quickly that my heart wasn't into sitting behind a desk and that I was missing that connection with the community. So I have this distinct memory of calling my advisor from undergrad in a panic, like, what have I done with my life? And she's like, it just sounds like your heart's not into it. That means there's a different path for you. And so I ended up taking a year off um, after undergrad because there's not as much you can do with the undergrad degree in psychology. You often need to go to more advanced training. So I took a year off and did a service program through AmeriCorps called Public Allies. And there I worked with the homeless shelter for women and children. 
And that was a very transformative year. It reinforced my passion for service, but also helped me articulate my interests in the social determinants of health, specifically my interest in housing and homelessness. And it was there that I started to see kind of how success was being measured and how it was being talked about. And I started to ask myself a lot of questions like, are we, is this program really making a difference? Are people really getting housed and staying housed? How's the well being of the residents who are staying here? And I wondered if there was a better way of doing that. And so I decided I was going to go to grad school after all and get a master's in public health and social work. Again, just kind of knowing that I was interested in this intersection between health and data and the community and still didn't really know what evaluation was. I thought I was going to be a community organizer with some sort of data focus. Um, and then while I was there, I got introduced to the School of Social Works Evaluation Center. And there was this whole group of individuals sitting in the back of one of my classes asking these fantastic questions. <laughs> I was like, you, you all are my people. I need to know where you came from, why you're in this class and what you're doing with your lives. And I learned again that they were at this evaluation center and just kind of fell into, like you said, everyone says, fell into this field, did my internship, social work internship at the evaluation center, got to have these real world experiences and evaluation and then through that got connected with the American Evaluation Association, discovered data visualization, which I geek out about all the time, and a few different evaluation jobs later, and uh, here I am. So I have my master's in social work is actually in social policy and evaluation, and then like I said, I have a master's in public health um, in health behavior and health education. So they complement each other nicely. And I did stick with kind of that social determinants of health and data intersection, just ended up in evaluation, which I hadn't considered before. Yeah. Wait, so did I hear correctly? You have two master's degree then? I do. Yes. Oh, I got nice. a dual master's. So I got two masters at the same time. Okay. Is that, was that common in your program then to get that? It was not, there was maybe about five or six of us at a time that we're getting it. So I got my master's at the University of Michigan and they're known for having a lot of dual degree programs. Uh, so some things kind of cross listed with each other. Um, but I knew right. that public health was a little more data focused. Social work was a little bit more community focused. And I really wanted to have the aspects of both. Um, I think the funniest thing about my program was that I was doing my internship in the School of Social Works Evaluation Center while taking intro to program evaluation in the School of Public Health. And it was just this really big, confusing moment because the things I was being taught in the classroom were very different from the practice I was experiencing uh -huh. in the community. And I was trying to kind of fix this disconnect in my brain of like, mm, are we really going to model it and write out the plan like this as I'm being taught by the book? Or, you know, is this real world practice, um, you know, really engaging the community members more of what evaluation looks like? So it was an interesting perspective to be doing both of those things at the same time. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I always kind of lament the fact that currently our program, the students come in, it's their first semester and they go straight into evaluation and working with a client. And I, th I think that's a bit much for students and I kind of freak out about it, but it sounds like at the same time, having kind of the, the book examples that are a little too 
perfect, I guess, is a way to put it. Um, while they're also simultaneously working with the client and experiencing all those lessons learned and challenges and how to overcome them and working in a real world setting, um, perhaps at least having it all in one class, as opposed to two separate things that, you know, trying to find how the pieces fit together type thing, um, maybe is helpful. So, uh, I'm going to not lament about it so much now. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, as you said, here you are, you are now working in doing your own stuff. You are Elizabeth Grimm Consulting LLC, and you have taken the path that a lot of my friends have been taking recently of doing their own thing. And it's like so much fun to watch my friends do all this. I, I always had thoughts and plans that maybe I'd do that. And I mean, maybe one day I will, but it's just, it's fun to watch you all. And, and I think there's these unique challenges to it that, um, I, I enjoy watching you, like everybody, like learn from them and grow from them and, you know, overcome with the challenges and obstacles that are thrown their way and just have a really rewarding experience through it all. So I'm really excited to talk to you a little bit about your consulting work. So just broadly speaking, what does your consulting work look like? How do you approach your consulting work, find clients, work with clients and so on? Yeah, that's a great question. So my business, I offer capacity building program evaluation and data visualization services. And that's a lot of jargon. And that language doesn't usually resonate with community members, potential clients. So I really talk about my work as moving organizations from confusion to clarity around data. And because I have a background starting my career, kind of working in the nonprofit sector, I was raised by folks that were also in the nonprofit sector. I'm able to connect with a lot of my clients who are in most of those social services, public health sectors, and able to connect with them on more of a personal level and say, hey, I understand a lot of the challenges that you all are experiencing. Um, And because of that, I think my passion and commitment comes through. So I find most of my clients come to me by word of mouth. And actually, you talk about us meeting on Twitter. I've gotten a few client calls from Twitter um, because folks have found me talking about evaluation or talking about maybe housing or some other policy issues on there. And they've just been interested and wanted to learn more. And so that's really exciting. I never thought that I would say that I would have clients coming off of Twitter. Um, but then thinking about, you know, the background of how I got to evaluation through social work, I really try to incorporate those values and perspectives of social work into my evaluation practice. So I think about using a collaborative and participatory and utilization approach when I'm working with my clients, which really means I'm going to meet clients where they are. I'm going to work with them together to create customized and meaningful solutions that work for their staffing structure, their budget, their time frame, things like that. I think sometimes it's easy to promise a client the sun, moon, and stars. And I think we all want to help as evaluators help our clients um, see success. But I find that things are more impactful when I can work alongside the group and really create those small incremental changes rather than trying to overhaul a system all at once. Um, And actually the interesting thing is that right now, most of my contracts kind of focus on the bookends of evaluation. So I'm doing a lot of sort of pre-evaluation coaching clients around what kinds of questions they should ask and maybe how they can think about data collection and really, Mm. you know, how do we talk about data? How do we define our outcomes? 
And then on the end result, doing a lot of training and coaching on, okay, well now how do we put it all together in a meaningful report? How do we tell our story? How do we make data informed decisions based on what we're finding? So I'm doing a lot less right now of the middle piece of actually collecting the data, which is kind of funny because that's what you're, I was trained a lot on in evaluation and right. kind of spending my time on those two other sides. Oh, that's interesting. You, you mentioned at the beginning, and this is, I think, kind of your business model per se, is the, you move from confusion to clarity. And so I know you've mentioned a little bit that one, one important piece of this is leaning into your values, your personal values, your professional values, um, and living through those. And so I'm always curious, like how people figure out what those values are and, and live to like, live up to those values. Um, I think we kind of take for granted that we have values in place and perhaps don't think not all of us, some of us are really good at this. And, you know, you and I could probably name some names that do this really well. Um, but I'm just curious, like, how did, how did this process come about for you? And how did you figure these things out for you and your business? Yeah. So one of the primary reasons that I moved from working for someone else to running my own consulting business is so that I could lean into my values more intentionally and consistently I was feeling like I needed to be one person at the office and another person at home. And that was feeling very disconnected and very unhealthy. So when I think of my values, I think of them holistically for me as a person, rather than necessarily distinguishing them as personal values or professional values. I want to be one person and try to show up as that person in all spaces to the extent that it's safe to do so. So one of the best resources that I've used for honing in on my values is Brene Brown's Dare to Lead book. And I see you nodding your head, which oh, folks yeah. can't see at home. So I think you're familiar <laughs> with this, but it includes an exercise to help you identify your top two values. So basically she lists about a full page of different values and asks you to identify the ones that resonate with you. And it's been a while, but I think then you narrow them down to 10 and then ultimately two. And the idea is that those two are kind of the overarching theme. So of course, as an evaluator, I nerded out about this idea of like thematically coding these values um, across all those other values. So you kind of have two core values and then these sub values that kind of fit into those um, two. And that really helped me articulate. and you know, we all kind of want to be good people. So you're going through the exercise and circling like every single value on the page. Kind oh, of. Yeah. <laughs> so it feels very like a place of conflict where you have to, to narrow them down, but it really helps articulate kind of, you know, what are you prioritizing? Why do you think you're interested in this value? Um, do you just want to be committed to this or are you really kind of in your soul and your practice committed to this? Um, and I remember sending texts to family and friends, like, feeling a little nervous that <laughs> I was signing this, you know, permanently tattooing it on myself, which again, values shift and change over time. So right. nothing's permanent, but it was a great exercise. And actually I recently did a similar exercise through the center for creative leadership. They have something called the valuable assessment and it walks you through kind of a similar process and then oh, goes a step further where it asks you to kind of write out more about how you're defining that value and how you're seeing it show up in your work or your life. Um, and so 
my top two values when I kind of went through that exercise were transparency and justice. And, um, you know, I think that does tie into a lot of my work and how I operate as a consultant, mm -hmm. really trying to be collaborative and open and um, communicate well with my clients. So they might evolve, but right now, <laughs> that's kind of where I am right now through that exercise. And I think one of the things that I've been exploring on this solopreneurship journey is how do I have those values show up? Not just in how I work with my clients in terms of facilitation or you know communication, but also how do I write them into my contracts? And I haven't figured that piece out yet. So mm. that's kind of on my to-do list right now is really making sure that these values aren't just on my website, that they're really living through every way that I operate with and communicate and talk about my work, um, both, yeah. you know, contractually and then in practice. It reminds me of the episode I did with Aisha Rios, um, that she talked a little bit about how it kind of starts with the contract and how she's been rethinking her. Um, I think I would say from my recollection of that episode, her like abolitionist standpoint and viewpoint and how she's embedding that into her contraction, uh, into her contracts um, and the work that she does. So it's really fascinating to see how people are not just taking things that like the contract for granted and really thinking thoughtfully about all of that. Um, I also have a value of transparency. So maybe that's why we're good friends. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also did a similar exercise. Um, I had a little bit of PD funds. I had to get paid. Like they, they were going to expire. I had to like use them up or they'd be gone. It's like, okay, let me just figure out what to buy. And there was this website that had um, decks of cards. Um, one was like two of them were sets of icebreakers and I've been using them with my students. They've been awesome. But the other was um, the value statements, like, like what Brene Brown and has in her book, but there's like a hundred, 150 of them. I don't know how many exactly, but they, um, it was the same thing went going through them. I struggled with the fact that I have so many spheres of my life and like, like what, which of these values actually resonate across all of them. Right. And I think actually, cause I kept trying to think, okay, what are my values in my teaching? What are my values in my research? What are my values in my consulting and service and stuff like that? And, uh, I, I can't, I can't remember exactly when I did that exercise, but I think it was before the time I started realizing kind of the connections between, for example, my teaching and evaluation work and how there was such this disconnect. And I was feeling it in my, my teaching. Cause I like how I approach my evaluation work, but teaching is newer. And there was this disconnect and I realized, Oh, once I applied how I approach evaluation to my teaching as well, like no more of that gut feeling that like, oh, this isn't quite right. This isn't quite how I want to do things, which has been really fascinating. I think that's really interesting when you talk about the gut feeling, because that's something that comes up so much working in this field. You know, you get the feeling when you're about to start working with a new group or a client, or when you're reading a contract, or when you're learning about a new methodology or, or some other program it's just like a lot of this work is trusting your gut and being able to listen to those signs. Yeah. And it sounds a little woo woo. Um, and years ago, I probably would have rolled my eyes if someone said like, just trust your gut um, in your career, in your business. But it's yeah. so true. And I think when we get those kind of feelings of disconnect or even angst 
um, I think that's a signal for us to kind of start asking some of those big questions like you were like, what is the overarching thing or what's the underlying issue here? And I get that as well. Like sometimes when I'm feeling really fired up about something on a project, I have to take a step back and say, okay, why am I feeling this way? Is there actually a problem or is this challenging my thinking in a way that I'm not ready Mm. to recognize and maybe not ready to resolve. Maybe there is no resolution. Maybe I just need to sit with this for a while. Right. Um, so I like your example of how you kind of used the values exercise to kind of reconcile that, that disconnect in your, in your mind. Well, I wonder for you, I, I find myself the, the value of transparency, perhaps I value it too much. And I wonder if I get myself into murky waters with that value that, um, perhaps putting it on that value on other people when they don't necessarily want that value. And I take it for granted that transparency is a value and I value it. It's a good thing. And sometimes I take it a little too far. I wonder, does that resonate at all with you? Or is it just (laughs) me that's doing this? (laughs) No, that definitely resonates with me. I've had this conversation with some colleagues and friends that, you know, I, you can't, I, I'm not, can't speak for you. I can't project my values and the way I operate onto someone else, right? Mm-hmm. I can show up in the way that I am and the way that I work and how someone responds is up to them. It's not up to me. I don't have control over that, which can be a really hard lesson to learn. Yep. Um, but I do feel that way where sometimes I'm thinking, I know that I am trying to read between the lines here and someone just needs to tell me. <laughs> what the political or staffing or budgetary constraint is here that we're all talking around. And sometimes you can just have that conversation depending on the client and your relationship and how long you work together. Um, But sometimes you can't. And there's a reason why someone can't be transparent in the moment about whatever factor. And you just kind of have to accept that. But I definitely, (laughs) definitely feel that tension sometimes as well. I've definitely told a lot of people when they're about to tell me stuff, be like, uh, you do not have to tell me this. Just rethink of the fact, whether you want to tell me, like, you don't have to tell me this, uh, cause it's, I'm a little too transparent, but, <laughs> um, well, you brought up that, uh, the gut feeling might be a little woo woo. And one thing that you and I have both been exploring perhaps together or, at the same time, separately, perhaps, um, is are things that other people might think as woo-woo as well of um, thinking about like um, embodiment and uh, the, like the breath work that we do with Libby Smith and um, exploring ideas of astrology and what that means and what or what that could mean or you know how we might use that. Um, meditations and all that type of stuff. So, I mean, I don't know if you want to share any of this and we could just move on if you want, but it just, I've been really interested in this because when my mom (laughs) found out that I was like kind of getting interested into astrology, she's like, who are you? And what did you do with my daughter? Because I was always this like logical, rational thinker and astrology does not fit into at least that side of Dana. And so it's like really interesting that I'm really shifting gears of like what truth can be and what, um, what that might look like in the world. My epistemology is changing. 
No, I, I think I've had the same reaction to myself. I've been telling myself the same story. Like, who are you? You know, you grew up thinking all about like numbers and data are facts. Like you can't debate them. They're what's true. And we know that's not the case, right? We know that numbers, if it's like artificial intelligence, you know, there are certain calculations that are going in that, that are shaping what the data looks like. We know that people, when we collect data, the decisions that people made, the people who were in the room, whoever's funding it, you know, all of these things impact the information that we have. It's not objective. Data is not objective, um, even though we're often taught that it is. And so I was the same way when I started taking in some of these other what, again, like we might call woo-woo, but real, realistically are just very much um, methods from other cultures and very have a lot of historical grounding. And so, you know, for me to kind of shun those off originally, that's very um, privileged, like white Western centric right. viewpoint um, for me to take. And that's unfair <laughs> and also not very equitable. And so, I started having some health struggles and just really struggling with, you know, what direction do I want my career to go? Am I going to make this leap to independent consulting? Am I going to keep working with for other people? And I was really just looking for answers from any avenue that it could come to me from. Um, and I knew that being able to clear my head and get more in touch with my body and that gut feeling was one way that was going to happen. Um, and so, yeah, I've really enjoyed getting to figure out the breath work, even though I'm like notorious for not making it through a whole <laughs> session without signing on to Twitter um, or texting sorry, me <laughs> or texting Dana. Um, but, you know, nothing's <laughs> you're not perfect at something when you start. And when I work with my clients and evaluation coaching, we talk about learning over perfection. And so, you know, it's important, I think, in this work and, you know, personal, professionally, whatever you're doing to really take that kind of growth mindset and curiosity. So um, I've even recently started acupuncture and that's a new, you know, form of <laughs> exploration that I hadn't tried in the past. But um, I think, What's exciting to me about evaluation and the field is that people are starting to look and recalculate what is considered evidence. Um, and just a shameless plug, because I'm the president of the Eastern Evaluation Research Society, that our 2022 conference theme is rethinking evidence. And it's all about kind of this type of question is, you know, what are we counting and valuing and considering and why and how does that need to change especially thinking about what the past 18 months with the global pandemic um, just recognizing that a lot of the voices that we've been prioritizing have a very singular viewpoint on what methods um, and perspectives should be incorporated and mm -hmm. you know we need to, we need to do better and we need to be thinking about how information can come from many different sources and um, you know we can triangulate that and have a more holistic view of the communities and programs that we're working with. That sounds like an awesome theme. I'm hoping I can attend that in the spring. I, has that announcement gone out? Because I don't recall I've seen <laughs> the theme being announced. Um, the theme was announced yesterday. And the call for proposals will go be out in early October with a deadline 
of late November. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I've been a little AWOL on Twitter lately. I just somehow just like magically lost interest and I'm running with it because I spend way too much time on it. (laughs) It's good to take breaks in all things. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. (laughs) Earlier, you also mentioned that you, when you talk about your approach, that you like to meet clients where they are. And I'm curious what that means for you and what that looks like for you. Yeah. So meeting clients where they are to me, again, really means creating those customized solutions specific to them. So I have general strategies that I use when I consult, um, but I really try to tailor the contract and the different groupings of trainings or the way that we're going to have discussions to that client. Because like I said, it's really more impactful to make those small incremental changes. So a lot of times, you know, we might focus on measuring one outcome really, really well, instead of creating this long-term, you know, evaluation plan. And I find that that helps, um, you know, really with engagement. So I've worked with clients before who have been very fearful of opening Excel So creating a plan for them that requires a lot of data analysis or data collection in Excel isn't meeting them where they are. It's just going to cause a lot of stress. They're going to feel disappointed and probably a lot of burden and maybe feel like their resources are being wasted on this engagement. And so, you know, you have to figure out what makes sense for where they are. And I think about kind of this ladder of moving them up one rung up the ladder at a time. Um, and just slowly building those skills. But meeting someone where they are also means just really understanding the situation and environment. And so I'm finding that to really have this sort of partnership, you need to build in a lot more time in contracts for planning and project scoping and relationship building. And then it's really a lot about listening because Mm -hmm you know, in pretty much any aspect of life, people just want to feel heard and understood. And sometimes if you can be that person as an evaluator, as a consultant, that's just listening to them. Sometimes that's even more powerful than any sort of analysis or reporting that comes out because they feel like their work has been valued and validated and they feel like they're making a difference. And to me, if that's as far as we get in a contract, sometimes that's okay. Um, because that's foundational to being able to do some of the later work that comes down the road in terms of data collection and reporting. Right. Yeah. That relationship building with our clients is key and is not something that we can just jump into a contract and get started with the evaluation. There's a lot of prep work that goes into it. And it sounds like a lot of capacity building for you as well. Yeah. So a lot of my work, I feel like is this relationship building capacity building piece and and they go hand in hand because if someone hires me to help them think through the data they're collecting, and if they're asking those right questions, I can't just go in and say, well, here's what I would do because I'm not the expert in that area. I'm the you know, person they hired to help facilitate this, but my clients are the experts. Our, our clients are the experts in their content, right? And so it's more helpful to go in with curious, another one of my values, go in and be really curious and ask a lot of questions and try to understand, you know, what's worked well in the past? 
What if you try that hasn't worked well because we don't want to repeat that? And you know, try to get an, a sense of kind of what maybe are some of those unspoken norms and values, you know, challenges. And then you can go into that and start building skills, creating some logic models, talking about how to craft a good question. But until you have that foundational sense of, you know, trust and relationship building, it's really hard to try to shift anything. Um, and, you know, my clients are usually, they're the ones changing systems and societies, right? They're working with these really sticky and complex social issues like housing and mental health and legal aid. And data and writing reports is not why they got into this work. Um, and as so fun as they are, <laughs> right. I mean, I love them, but not everyone does. Um, and so, you know, you have to understand that we all come at, we all want to kind of better the programs and the systems and society, but we're coming at it from different ways. And, you know, if we can understand different perspectives and how we can all kind of put the different pieces of the puzzle together, then ultimately we're just going to have a stronger partnership. But, um, Sometimes it can be a challenge to, to build in that intentional relationship building, I think, into contracts. Yeah. Do, do you build it into your contracts? What, what might that look like? <laughs> well, right now, most of my clients are people that I have a previous relationship with. Mm-hmm. And so what I've been thinking about more recently is how I'm spending a lot of time scoping and doing a lot of unpaid labor contracting with people and getting a better understanding. And so right now I'm doing some thinking about, okay, how can I add a price (laughs) to some of that? Obviously you always need to have some of those introductory calls, but there comes a point where something shifts and then you're just doing a lot of background information gathering. And so I haven't found the solution yet, but I'll keep you posted. I look forward to that. (laughs) Yeah. I've, uh, most of my clients have also been the same way of like, um, I came in on a project when in my grad school and they already had a long-term relationship with my advisor. And so I come in and just kind of am able to kind of ride that wave a little bit and then build the relationships myself through that. Um, but I'm just curious because I, I, I work with newer clients now and it's, it's a different, it's a different mentality, right? The, different approach and different ways of building those relationships than develop. Like it's different to build it from kind of nothing versus continuously to refine hone and enhance the current relationships that you have. Yeah. I think the key is to, one of the things I talk about when I contract is that this contract is somewhat flexible. Like we're going to scope it out originally, but we're going to have check-in points because it's quite often that we write one thing. And then as we start getting into the work, we realize something needs to shift. Um, And so I do in pretty much all of my contracts, try to build in at least one, if not a few, you know, two hour, couple hour discussions with kind of all of the key partners who need to be involved in an initial conversation to make sure that we're all on the same page um, and really start that foundational relationship building where I think it would depend on the client of how receptive someone might be is how many of those meetings you're having. Um, because people don't want to necessarily always pay for you to get caught up to speed. They want to be doing the work. So it's how can you kind of make that relationship building intentional and not 
an interview format, you know? Um, And there are, there are ways to do that. And I think as long as you can build that relationship building into the work and making it feel like you're starting to make some of that incremental progress, then it's much easier to build into projects than, you know, have a checklist when you're first meeting with someone and saying like, okay, how do you do this? What about that? Blah, 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 blah. No one really likes to feel like they're on display like that um, upon an initial meeting. I've been thinking about like the fetishization that we have with things like checklists. I think they're very useful, but uh, in things like relationship building, (laughs) as much as I would love to have a checklist, there is no checklist that can be created to do that work. Right. Like introduce myself, check. Okay. (laughs) Describe my interest, check. Like it's just, that's just not gonna, it's not gonna come off as authentic and warm and that's generally at least the types of groups that I work with they value that authenticity and relationship building and and trust and listening more than you know checking things off a list so switching gears now thinking kind of more of the 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 tail end of the contract process evaluation process what it is whatever it is you might be working on with your client um you've done some great work thinking about reporting and data visualization and stuff uh for example you and Anne emery had an awesome eers conference presentation last spring i loved it lots of tips and tricks and um you showed us some things that you did that um and how you improve them and and refine them and how it's a very iterative process and so i one really appreciated that session uh so i don't want to ask you to recap that because people should have just attended the conference and so <laughs> hopefully they'll take and attend the next one but what has been and i asked this because i think everybody has a story like this is like what has been your business what has been your biggest success in evaluation reporting, but also what has been your biggest failure that you've experienced? And you can go either one first. <laughs> yeah. So my, it was, it's funny. Cause when you ask about success, I'm thinking like an evaluator, right? I'm saying, okay, well, how are we defining success in reporting? <laughs> <laughs> and so for me, I gauge success by whether or not a client ha- is pleased with the product. That's pretty important to me, but ultimately whether or not the information is being used. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I don't think about, you know, how it, is it the prettiest report I've ever done? Although I do like things to look nice, but it's more than that. It's, is the, is the information in the report being used? Is it being used to make change? And when I think about that definition of success, it's funny because the report that I would say is the most successful is one I had nothing to do with the design on, Mm. (laughs) which I love designing reports. So it's kind of funny. But it's a project I did in partnership with the office of the Idaho Office of Performance Evaluation on child welfare um, with Rakesh Mohan and his team there. And it was successful because it resulted in multiple pieces of legislation being signed by the governor. And so when I think about best case scenario of (laughs) utilization of evaluation findings, you know, that would be that would be it. of course, not every one of our evaluation reports is going to get in front of the governor's eyes. Um, so I've had a number of other successes, um, you know, early on in my career. I think, again, when we think about success, 
I feel like almost every report has a little success in it. And so early on in my career, we were looking at um, a juvenile justice program and helping them understand, you know, who was in the program and what the outcomes were like for those youth. And what was actually interesting is we created a grid, just a two by two square to show, you know, risk levels um, and things like that to show high need, high risk, low need, low risk, you know, et cetera. And we're able to show how many youth fit into each of those four boxes. And then we're able to highlight and say, hey, so you serve, your program is intended to serve this group of youth, but the group of youth that are currently in your program are actually this other box Mm. and something needs to shift either your intended population or your program model or something. And just a simple two by two square was so impactful. And so when I think about success of reporting, it's not always, you know, a big glossy, shiny annual report that's being distributed widely. Sometimes it's just those very meaningful um, and informative graphs that tell the story in the way that the client needed at that time. Yeah. It's interesting. I, uh, I just came from class earlier with my eval class and um, I was just sharing some slides and, you know, when you're creating in my case, four different slide decks twice a week, uh, you, you get a little um, not using all the correct poster or presentation and data visualization principles. Sorry, echo, sorry, everybody else. <laughs> uh, and I got to a slide and everybody was like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of text. And I was like, yeah, I mean, these are just examples of evaluation questions just to give you a, a flavor of what this can look like. Um, but given how I know students use those of, of referring back to them frequently and using them more as kind of not so much a PowerPoint presentation, but as a reference manual, um, like I know people are using them despite them being simple and not adhering to the correct principles of good presentations and so on and so forth. But um, well, and I'll, I'll tell you about a failure in a minute, but you know, we talked about checklists earlier, right? Kind of joking about them. And there are a number of data visualization checklists. Right. And they're fantastic. They give a lot of guidelines on kind of how to improve your graphs, how to tell a more meaningful story. And early on in my evaluation training, I thought these checklists were just set in stone, like should not deviate, must check all the boxes. And was kind of getting a little nervous about it when I was writing my reports. Like, I don't want to end up on someone's bad list for data visualization. And I've realized in practice and having a lot more experience now that those are guidelines and it's okay to break the rules and it's okay to play and try to try new things because there's not a one size fits all model for any of this. Um, And what works in one community might not work for another community And it's just really about getting the feedback of the group that you're working with. So like, you know, your students will probably reference those questions at a later time. So it's really helpful to have the questions laid out and that's fine. You know, would it follow maybe a best practice for what you put on slide design? Maybe not, but for the purpose that you're intending, it works great. And that's what reporting and data visualization is all about. I want to hear your failure. Um, Yeah, so my biggest reporting failure was a couple years ago and it 
it still haunts me to this day. Um, it was a report looking at equity and the social determinants of health. And it was a compilation of publicly available data that was disaggregated across geographies and populations. There was a contract with what I thought were very clear data questions, very clear expectations, and a pretty quick turnaround time. So I, you know, went back, wrote the report, delivered it to the client. I was super proud of it. And when I got feedback on the report, I realized that there was a huge disconnect between the expectations of the person I was working directly with and the organizational leadership. Mm. So I had presented really detailed data and comparisons. They were looking for something a little more high level. So I went back, I created some one pager summarizing the data. Turns out they weren't looking for that either. They really just wanted a compilation of line charts. It was, it was just an epic fail. And I'm pretty sure that report went into a drawer never to be seen again. Um, which is really sad and disheartening and exactly what we don't want to happen. What's interesting is that this is a group that I already had a relationship with. And because of that, I skipped some of the important background mm. information, gathering relationship building steps that I would normally do with onboarding a new client. And was that ever a major lesson learned? Um, so definitely if I were to do that again, make sure to build in, even if I'm familiar with the client, those introductory meetings with more than one perspective to make yeah. sure that I was having an accurate understanding of the ask and not just kind of the, you know, telephone kind of effect down the line. Um, so that's, I think about that project a lot, but, you know, if you read the uh, evaluation failures book, um, so everyone should probably go out and get, read that. You realize mm -hmm. that we're all learning all the time and that's how we improve our practice. And, you know, I can laugh about it now because it's so silly, but in the moment, mm, wasn't laughing. I'm glad we can laugh about it now. Um, I've, I feel like, uh, both of these stories had some story, like some implications, like how we need to have repeated check-ins with clients, like check in, how was the report? What is your feedback? Cause I feel like that's something that, especially at the reporting stage for at least I, it's been my lesson learned as well. It's like, we need to check in of like, Hey, am I on the right track with what you're looking for here? As opposed to making an assumption that this is perhaps the way that we should be reporting, for example. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, those multiple check-ins at different points of the, the data visualization process. So sometimes I'll give a client three different options of the same data point and say, which one of these makes more sense to you to try to understand what types of charts resonate with them? You know, how do they want to tell this story? And actually right now I'm working with a client where we talked broadly about what she wants and I have the data now. And what we've agreed on is I'm going to write a broad contract of saying, based on the data, this is the type of, these are the questions I would ask. And this is the type of conclusion we can make from it. Does that meet your needs? Because there's no point in running all of the data <laughs> um, in a certain way, if that's not going to get to the heart of what she's trying to, what they're trying to understand. So 
Um, I do think those building in those check-ins is really important. And I think it's often the first thing to go when we get kind of stuck in a rut and, and doing business as usual, or we're working up against a deadline. It's, you know, we all know we should do this, but it can be very um, challenging to, <laughs> to actually yeah. build that time in. But ultimately the relationship and the project will be so much better for it. Yeah. Especially when our, our clients are pressed for time, like we're working often with nonprofits that don't have enough money to do what they need to do, don't have enough staff to do what they need to do. And for us to come and be like, Hey, which of these three graphs look best to you? It's like, well, aren't you the expert? It's like, I mean, yes, but you're the one who's going to be doing something with it. I really liked your point about like, what, what can I actually answer with this question with these methods? Cause it makes me think about um, how I teach my students with their proposal writing. And it's, we don't, we don't give that in the proposal. And I'm just imagining how helpful that could be of like, here are the questions and given the methods we're going to use, here's potential scenarios of what this could look like as um, a way, like it reminds me of like patents, utilization focused evaluation of, you know, what are you going to use it for one? And then like, making sure you're ready in case the answer is not what you want, right? Because the answer could be this, it could be this, here's the range of possible answers. Are you prepared for that? Or at least like letting you know, this is what, what's coming down with what we're going to be doing. Yeah. And also just making sure that your approach aligns with the output, right? Um, We see, I think an easy to understand example is, you know, if you don't ask the survey question and have the right response options to get you the information you need, then it doesn't matter how well constructed your survey is, you're not going to be able to make those conclusions. And survey or any other form of data collection or process, I think it's just really important to start asking those questions really early. And, you know, it's a little bit selfish. I don't want to run a lot of data. And I don't want to charge the client, you know, a lot of hours to run something and not have them get what they need. And so it's a win-win on both sides. And I think, you know, again, it's also a learning if we go from the capacity building perspective, it's a learning opportunity to really make sure that everyone understands kind of how the questions we ask relate to what we're going to be able to say later on. So. I want to iterate your earlier point about the importance of spending a lot more time on the prep work as opposed to the, the work work itself, right? Like I'd rather spend 80% of my time prepping to make sure that 20% of my work work is time well spent. Otherwise I'm just going to be putting out fires doing the work work, right? (laughs) Right. And our clients have so many fires they're already putting out. Like we don't need to add data to one of those at all. Yeah. Well, I think uh, this is about the time we like to wrap up and I like to end the show with something that I love from Code Switch. They like to ask what song is giving you life right now. And uh, you can answer what song is giving you life right now if you want, but I'm curious what an evaluation is giving you life. What's giving me life in evaluation is the people. Um, I've definitely felt this even more so during pandemic times where I'm not seeing local folks in person as much. The evaluation community has just really supported me in such a surprising and, you know, blessed way that I just feel so grateful. And I'm really excited to be connected with a group within the evaluation community that's committed to doing things differently. So it might just have been my interpretation, but when I first started in the field, 
I felt like there was a sense of needing to stay in your lane and understanding and abiding by the the boundaries of evaluation. And Mm -hmm. this is a question I think about a lot. It seems like maybe now our definition of evaluation, our understanding of the boundaries and how we do evaluation is evolving. Um, Or maybe it's not evolving and maybe it's going back to its origins. I don't know, but (laughs) regardless, this, this shift, this movement towards challenging the status quo, is really energizing and exciting to me. And you mentioned Aisha Rios earlier, and you know I'm really invigorated by conversations that she's leading around being an abolitionist and other initiatives like the Equitable Evaluation Initiative and thinking about trauma-informed evaluation. So I am just really feeling you know excited and rejuvenated by the people. And I also know that I have a very long list of reading and some listening and learning to do. So I'm excited about that too. Yeah. Yeah. Strong agree. The people make this community so great. I'm, I'm grateful for our community. And what is coming up for you? I mean, you've, you've gone to Elizabeth Grimm Consulting LLC and you are working on client projects. You are doing fun hikes and stuff. Uh, we're raiding fat bears. It's bear week, right? <laughs> It is but what else is coming? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what else is coming up for you? Anything personal, professional that you want to share or are excited about? Yeah. So my big 2021 um, launch was, you know, formally making Elizabeth Grimm Consulting. So that was pretty big, and I still feel like I'm riding that for a while. I just got back from a trip to Glacier National Park, which was incredible. And it's been a dream of mine for years to go there. So that's feeling really special. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about how I can hold on to those feelings of stillness and wonder and calm in my work Mm. and everyday life. Um, So that's feeling, you know, really wonderful. And then kind of the next thing that I'm thinking about right now is the American Evaluation Association Conference in November. Excited to see all our evaluation colleagues online. And I will actually be leading a conversation at the conference around inclusive and nonviolent language. And so I'm really excited to be able to talk about that topic, which is something I'm really passionate about with a group of colleagues as well. Oh, I'm very excited for that session. I can't wait. Well, Elizabeth, it's been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dana. It's been really fun. Appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evalueland.fireside.fm, where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evalueland.